The title of today's talk is Pandora's Box. I don't know whether you're familiar with this expression, many of you probably are. Uh, in a way, you can think of Pandora's Box as more ordinary expression as a can of worms. You open a can of worms and there's all kinds of worms coming out. <laughs> Something similar happens with Pandora's Box. Uh, it's a common expression in some circles and it comes from the Greek mythology. See, in, uh, among the Greeks, Pandora was a little bit equivalent, kind of equivalent to Eve in, in our mythology. And uh, for some reasons that are a bit complicated, the god Zeus saw it fit to give Pandora the gift of this box. And uh, the box was filled with all evil aspects of human nature. And sure enough, when she opened, she was curious enough to open it, hmm? all this stuff came out. And all sorts of trouble and grief and calamity came into the world. That's a more common version of that legend. There is, I was surprised to find out, another version, also a Greek version, in which uh, Pandora's box was full of joys, joyful stuff. But that doesn't make the story much better because all these delights came out and were lost when she opened the box. And then there is a third aspect of Pandora's legend that's all but ignored in our world today. And that is that in both versions, whether the good stuff or the bad stuff was filling the box. <coughs> and either then the bad stuff inflicts pain, the good stuff gets lost in the process. Then the, the box is left. And in the Greek legend, engraved on the bottom of the box was a Greek word for hope. I, I find this fascinating. Today I want to resurrect, rekindle this aspect of the legend that looks at what's left in the box, not just at what escapes, but what becomes possible after all the clutter is gone. Which indeed is very much 
what this practice is about. In the practice, through the teachings, we are invited to look into our own, our own mental Pandora's box. The box where all our stuff is boxed in. And the teachings encourage us to open the box, actually. Let all the stuff come out. And look at it. Look at it. And very importantly, look at what's left. The thrust of the first three noble truths, those of you who were here last night, I spoke about the noble truth. The thrust, just to connect with last night, uh, the thrust of the first three noble truths is precisely that. There is suffering. If there is suffering, look into it. And as I said last night, if this invitation to look into the suffering is not enough, then there is a thing called the fourth truth, or noble eightfold path, which encourages, which gives you hints on how to do that. Frightening? Of course. Of course we've been, you know, stuffing this stuff bottling it up in this box, boxing it up in this box for so long. We don't want it to get out. And we know the stuff is there because it's not just the use who put it in there, it's us. We've been putting it there all the time. And we've got used to keep it under lock and key. Now, as the legend says, when all the stuff comes out, we're left with the empty box. The legend says it embodies hope. Can we trust that? Can we trust that? It, it all hinges on really on the nature of mind. What do we believe to be the nature of our minds? The intrinsic nature of our mind. Is it wholesome or unwholesome? Is it reliable or unreliable? The Buddha is very clear on that. He says in a very short passage, he says, luminous monks is the mind, and it's defiled by incoming defilements. That is to say, it's contaminated by incoming contaminants. 
So contaminants come from the outside. Mine, the empty box, if you wish, is luminous. And then he goes on to say, luminous monks is the mind, and it's freed from incoming defilements. In other words, it can be purified. Okay, so that's what the Buddha said. But, you know, we can still question it. We should question everything. And the problem is that that particular sort of statement runs counter all our cultural conditioning. And so I want to spend some time looking at the, that cultural conditioning. Otherwise, you see, we pay, we pay lip service to what the Buddha says because we are sort of interested in what the Buddha says or whatever. But at the same time, we hold beliefs that are very, very ingrained in our culture. So we need to settle that in our minds. So let me examine what is the implicit belief, cultural belief, that we carry around. Take the Judeo-cultural uh, Christian, Judeo-Christian tradition. I understand that regardless of whatever Jesus meant, who was a tremendous teacher of the Bible meant, the ordinary take that follows along the lines of a statement that, I, as I read somewhere, is often repeated in Lutheran services. And this statement is very concise and very unmistakable and says, we are by nature sinful and unclean. And that, that's very much the kind of, of uh, subtext that we get in many of the versions of the Christian tradition. Then there's a scientific tradition. The, the habitual take on Darwinism. I used to be a geneticist, so I know that very well. I used to teach that stuff. But my first view of Darwinism interestingly enough, occurred when I was quite young, so young that I was, I was old enough to go to the movies, but too young to go to the movies by myself. So my, I cannot time it any better than that. My parents took me to this movie that they thought was quite extraordinary, and it was a very impressive movie. Look, I, know, I remember very, very little about my young years, and this I remember vividly. The picture was a documentary. It was called, in Spanish, of course, I lived in Buenos Aires, Matar o Morir. To kill or to die. You wish to or kill to, or be killed. 
and it was full of very vivid images of animals gobbling each other. Still remember it. Over 70 years, about 70 years ago. Of course, technically, that's called the survival of the fittest. And it surely occurs, no question. The problem is that our culture has given it an authority that goes well beyond its place. See, I was never seen a movie about cooperation among animals. And yet, instances of cooperation are just as frequent, if not more frequent, throughout the natural world than instances of competition. But competition is enthroned by our culture. And perhaps this little story that I'm going to tell you may, may throw some light on why. You know, I used to teach at Long Island University for a long time. And, and at the university, rarely, not very frequently, but rarely, there were instances where the faculty was giving an opportunity to fraternize with the trustees. Maybe fraternize is too strong a word, but <laughs> interact with the trustees. And now, this particular very prominent trustee, perhaps one with the greater, greatest political clout, came to me very interested, calls it up to me, and explain me why his business and my branch of science, genetics, were, were really into the same thing, inspired by the same philosophy. And, and he was right. He was right. Those are, it's not coincidental that competition has such a good press in uh, looking at science. And, and this seesawing between cooperation and competition pervades all areas of life. Just, just a, about a month or two ago, I went to Poughkeepsie train station to pick up uh, one of my granddaughters who was visiting. And so as we drive out of the station into Route 9, I had to make a, a left-hand exit into the next road. And so I changed lanes. And the guy behind me, I, I don't understand why, got very furious. I, I don't think I cut him out in any way. But he must have felt that. And he rushed ahead, went onto the shoulder, and passed me, brutally, dangerously. 
I mean, it was, it was a dangerous thing to do. And um, it's clear that the driver's ego was highly rewarded by this maneuver. And, and it's uh, fortunate that I didn't get really incensed. I didn't buy into the situation. My heart pounded a little bit, more out of the danger than of being passed up like that. So, so, in conclusion, looking, having looked at, uh, you know, the Judeo-Christian tradition, the scientific tradition, and the road rage tradition, if you wish, which is the nature of mind? Is our mind basically inclined towards war or towards peace? Towards cooperation or competition? Towards hate or love? Uh, I'm afraid I cannot give a conclusive, rational, definitive answer. True, I, I put a lot of faith in what the Buddha says, but that may not be enough. For me, more important than that, with, with all due respect to the Buddha, is my own experience. And in my own experience, when I turn inwards, when I go deep down, what I find and others find too, in fact, is in the group today somebody said something to that effect. What I find is that peace breaks out. Love overflows. When I really go to the core of things. Even though, of course, from that, in that overflow, you may see the debris of hate and anger floating away. I'm talking about the essence, not about all the contaminants that cover that essence. That may or may not be your experience. But let me just add one more argument in favor of the essential purity of mind. And that is that a belief in the purity of mind can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. When you believe in that, you discover that your mind inclines that way. So there's that pragmatic benefit. So having covered the, covered the alternatives and the doubts about, let me go back to the Buddha. And, and read again what the Buddha says about the 
mind. He says, luminous monks is the mind, and it's defiled by incoming defilement. Luminous monks is the mind, and is freed from incoming defilements. And in another passage that I'm not going to read, now, the Buddha compares the mind and the purification of mind with the purification of gold. Apparently, as some of you may have heard from pictures about the gold rush or whatever, or reading about it, or anywhere else, when you work to purify gold, you, you start with a, a whole bunch of sand with a few grains of gold, and there's a process of washing that's required so that you end up with a pure gold. Mind, the Buddha says, is like that. And this understanding is, is highlighted very vividly in the Tibetan teachings, if any of you have had anything to do with that type of Tibetan, of Buddhist teachings. Buddhist teachings from the Tibetan tradition are constantly referring to the pure nature of mind. And they compare very often the transparency, the lucidity of mind with the lucidity of a clean mirror. Say, mind is like a clean, clean mirror that reflects things as they are, unless, of course, it's dirty. Then it has to be cleaned of, say, defilements, as the Buddha would say. And th so this clean, empty mirror brings us back to the empty Pandora's box. A box that's empty where everything has come out and it's now open to inflow and outflow. Nothing held tight. So, Rather than taking this as a, as a rhetoric, as words, let's, let's just think of that in terms of the actual experience of practice. Noticing that as we practice, we focus on the breath, say, and there are times, not all the time, sometimes very few times, but there are times when our tendency to control things starts to soften. Our holding tight down the lid of our Pandora's box so gives in a little bit and, and we open it maybe a crack. Maybe a crack. But the process of opening at least starts. Oh, it's not an easy process. 
it runs against the grain of a lifetime of conditioning. There is a, a playwright who I come to appreciate very much. Her name is Eve Ensler, and she's best known as the author of a play called The Vagina Monologues. She's great at finding titles. And <laughs> I, I appreciate very much her last book, more by the title than anything else. And the title of her last book is Insecure at Last. <laughs> She referring not just to the newfangled national security schemes that are in vogue uh, these days, but also uh, primarily to the old-fashioned inner security of our mind. Pandora's box, really. She doesn't use that image, but she talks about that. About the same thing. Here, here is just a. A quote from a book. She says, there are two kinds of power. There is a power that emerges through allowing grief to emerge. It feels clean, purged, and inclusive. You have experienced pain and grief, so you would not want to inflict it on someone else. Then there's a power that emerges through the denial of grief. This is aggressive power. It's trying to conquer something, annihilate something, and overcome something. It emerges out of fear and the need to protect oneself. I would say understandable. I mean, it's an understandable need, of course. But she says, it's unauthentic power, manufactured. Its central energy is rooted in control and in maintaining the illusion of control. That's the worst part. This power is based on pushing something away. To grieve means letting go of this position, letting go of the need for position, the need for strategy or defense. Means being lost in a wave of grief, means surrender. Surrender, I would say, to the truth of things in the same way that a clean mirror may be said to surrender to the objects it reflects. So, to the open Pandora box may be said to surrender to all that comes in, 
and to all that goes away, retaining nothing, unburdened and receptive. In, in very similar terms, in analogy to Pandora's box, the Buddha repeatedly reminded us that we have to make a choice between being shuttered and impervious or open and exposed to life. One metaphor he often used, much like Pandora's box uh, to me, is that of a hut that can be opened or closed, that is to say, with or without a roof. And you can see, uh, to me, the roof in the hut, open or closed, is like the roof in uh, the lid in Pandora's box. Here's a snippet of a dialogue in the scriptures between the Buddha and a cattleman called Danya. I don't know how to pronounce Danya, perhaps. Here's a dialogue. It's a poetic kind of thing. Danya is a very rich man. And he says, it's a very friendly dialogue with the Buddha. The Nia says, the rice is cooked, my milking done. I live with my people along the banks of the Mahin. That's a river. My hut is roof, my fire lit. So, if you want rain god, Go ahead and rain. And it's clear from the dialogue that the Buddha doesn't take exception to that. He understands that Daniya lives with his family in a house that's roofed, like all of us do. But then in a, in a metaphorical sense, and perhaps in a literal sense as well, the Buddha responds. Free from anger, my stubbornness gone, I live for one night along the banks of the Mahi. My hut's roof is open, my fire out. So if you want rain god, Go ahead and rain. So there's, there's room for both, undoubtedly, particularly in the literal sense of the roof. But in the deeper sense, resonating with the Buddha's word, words, let us let the rain fall. Let 
has allowed the difficulties to present themselves. And let us remain open to the truth of that, trusting in a mind that is not shattered in any way, but is of one peace with the world. Let's sit for a few minutes, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.